Welcome back to Women Making Moves, where we celebrate the moves that women are making. This is Amy Pons. I'm a master certified life coach and a soul healer. I'm joined today with Sherry Palm. Sherry is the founder CEO of APOPS, Association for Pelvic Organ Prolapse Support. Ms. Palm's most recent book, The Biggest Secret in Women's Health, Stigma, Indifference, Outrage, and Optimism, follows three editions of her prior award-winning book, Pelvic Organ Prolapse, The Silent Epidemic. Palm is a pelvic organ prolapse patient advocate, vaginal and intimate health activist, internationally recognized speaker, POP key opinion leader, which is again, pelvic organ prolapse and prolific writer regarding POP physical, emotional, social, sexual fitness and employment quality of life impacts. Sherry Palm, welcome. Hi, I'm so happy to be here and join you to share information with your following, Amy. Amazing. Happy to have you. That was a really good bio that challenged me in this Monday afternoon. Yeah, sometimes the tongue's like, it's still the weekend. (laughs) And we were talking about it before I hit record. I'm kind of off today. I'm kind of not off today. So that's the glory and beauty of being your own boss, right? Mm -hmm, Exactly. Okay, Sherry. So tell us a little bit more. I read this amazing bio. You have four books, the fourth one coming soon. But tell us a little bit about your work specifically, why you're passionate for women and what are the moves that you're excited to be making right now? Well, my whole journey began because I was diagnosed with a condition I had never heard of before. Short version of the backstory is I was diagnosed at 30 with MS, wheelchair bound, short time frame, blah, blah, blah. And I found answers for myself and was extremely proactive about my health from that point forward. So moving into my mid fifties to be diagnosed with a woman's health condition I'd never heard of was frankly infuriating for me. I was extremely rattled by that. And when my practitioner told me that I had pelvic organ prolapse and that she would fit me with a pessary and that I could see a urogynecologist for further consultation if I did not like the pessary and I had no clue what she was talking about, it just pushed me to the edge. It's like, okay, I need to know what's going on here. And so that exploration led me to the path I'm on now. And this goes back to 2007 when I was first diagnosed. So To be diagnosed with a condition and have no knowledge of it when you're in your 50s is extremely unsettling. So I did what most women would have done. I went home and I hit Dr. Google to see what I could find out about this condition. And I hit the library as well to see what I could find down there. And there wasn't much information available at that point in time back in 2007 about pelvic organ prolapse as far as just open information. So I continued to dig long enough to get enough basic information about this condition. And this condensed version for your your listeners here so they understand what this condition is about. There's five systems in your pelvic cavity, five different types of systems. And each of those organs in those different systems can start to travel south and move into the vagina and push their way out of the vagina. And that's what creates these five different types of pelvic organ prolapse. So uh, at the point I was diagnosed, I had three of the five types. I was in a grade three advanced stage of progression. So I, I was upset. I was angry. I wasn't anxious or fearful because health conditions are treatable. It's just a matter of finding information for yourself. So that led me to the path. And my initial thought was I was about two weeks post diagnosis and the light bulb came on. If I don't know this, women don't know this in general, and I need to write a book. Now, I had never written a book before. I had no clue what writing a book was all about. I had no idea how to do anything to do with that layer and publishing any of that stuff. I just knew I had to do this. So I went ahead and uh, wrote the book. I actually saw a urogynecologist in January 2008, and we discussed surgery, which is the path I ended up taking. And 
between that time and I had a 12 week heel curve from surgery, I did my uh, homework and research and wrote the book and had that finished by the time my heel curve was finished in July. And I was about maybe 18 months into marketing. I found a publisher about 18 months into marketing that first book when the light bulb came on. If I want to really reach women effectively and help them effectively, I should find a nonprofit. I knew simple about nonprofit either. <laughs> so I went down that rabbit hole. Lucky me, Marquette University here in Milwaukee has got a great program to help on the pro bono side, on the legal side, how to build a nonprofit, file your paperwork with the federal government for 501c3, et cetera. And I applied, I was accepted and worked my way through that system. And then it became a matter of each step forward to build the big picture, which is reaching all women. So as time moved on, the word about what the nonprofit was doing kind of leaked out here and there. I'd learned about social media and building websites and all the stuff everyone else has to learn about when they've got a business. And the pivot point underscoring all of this is the fact that pelvic organ prolapse impacts an estimated 50% of women, one in two women, extremely prevalent. It's been medically documented for nearly 4,000 years. Childbirth and menopause are the leading causal factors for this condition, but there's no standardized screening protocol inclusion in public exams for this. What's wrong with that picture? Everything. <laughs> Everything is wrong with that picture. So the deeper I got into this, the more passionate I became, the more determined I became. And in the early years, because I have no medical degree, in the early years, I was laughed at by the biggest and the best in this space. You know, who does she think she is? And it's a typical patient advocate story. There's nothing unusual about my story. Many nonprofits are funded by someone who either has a condition or has a loved one who's impacted by a condition, and they're determined to change the status quo. And that's what my backdrop is. And the reality is, is this wasn't about any moves so much that I was making. I was simply steering the ship. Women who are making the moves for this move, it is a movement. There's no doubt about it. And it's imperative that we all get comfortable talking out loud about vaginal health. It's a body part. It's nothing more. It's nothing less. And it's been hush-hush for way, way, way too long. So everything that I think, do, and say is all going to do with that energy. And, and each book that came along was a progression of the prior book. It's like, okay, there's so much changing now in this space. It's finally being recognized a little bit and acknowledged a little bit. And there's more treatments being explored and more research being done. So as time goes on, I assumed in the beginning, I probably would have to write a, a fresh book about every three to five years. And so after I got past the third edition of my first book, I kind of focused on, not kind of, I did focus on structurally making APOPs, my nonprofit, stronger and, and more diverse and more empowering to women, looking at this more from instead of a pelvic organ prolapse specific energy to a woman's vaginal and intimate health empowerment inclusive energy so that we're actually bringing this stuff up the surface and getting comfortable with it. It's no different than it was with like the breast cancer campaigns back in the 1970s. That energy began in the 50s. And it wasn't until the 1950s when there was a celebrity who tagged in, a, a president's wife who tagged in, and that kind of blew that up. And I've been chasing celebrities since I've been doing this in the beginning. <laughs> I'm chasing celebrities down all the time, politicians down. But women are so uncomfortable still with vaginal dialogue. It's a huge roadblock. So thought process is like, okay, it's a vagina. Get over it. This is enlightening. I've never heard of this before in my life. And the fact that you said one in two women have or will have this is pretty staggering. 
And a couple of questions based on what you've just talked about. And thank you for bringing this to the show. This is really dire. Does this only happen to women and why? I'm sorry, does this only happen to women? And yes, yes. and why? Pelvic organ prolapse specifically only happens to women. And that's because the organs push the vagina. There are other types of prolapse. And the most, I shouldn't say, I don't like to use the word common, but with men, they may experience rectal prolapse where, where tissues bulge out of the rectum. And women can experience that as well. Uh, rectal prolapse, rectal seal is the rectum bulging out of the vagina. And rectal prolapse is tissues bulging out of the rectum itself. So they're, they're distinctly different health conditions. And so men, no, they cannot get pelvic organ prolapse because they don't have vaginas. So, so it's because we have a front hole. Right, exactly. A whole separate space for the organs to push down into. Okay. The bony structure comes in the picture too, because a, a woman's pelvic bony structure is different than a man's bony yeah. pelvic structure. And a man's is much more contained. And a woman's got an opening for the babies to come out. That creates this weakness in the structure. Is there something that this condition is known? Is there is there something that this might be called other than this that people might have heard of more often? Well, women are certainly familiar with urinary leakage, and that is tied to this. Okay. Women are very familiar with chronic constipation. That okay. is tied to this. Because of the, the symptoms that manifest with this condition, they're, they've probably heard of all of them or experienced all of them or some of them at some point in their life cycle. Let me get my cards here and read through the different symptoms. Okay, so on the symptom side, and for me, it just felt like my insides were falling out, basically. And women say that often. It feels like your insides are falling out. But think about, your, so the urinary incontinence, but you can also have urine retention where you have got that urge to go, but you cannot pee. So think urine retention as a term. You can have fecal incontinence as well as chronic constipation. You can have pain with intimacy and Women that have that may or may not, doesn't mean that you're going to have pelvic organ prolapse with any of these specifically. It's These are all just symptoms that can indicate it may be a POP thing occurring. A lack of sexual sensation. You may have had great orgasms and all of a sudden they, they get weaker and weaker and then they just stop occurring at all. Let's see, rectal, vaginal, back or pelvic pain can occur. Rectal or vaginal pressure is very common. And if your tampons are pushing out, Guess what? Come on down. I had that flag in my late 30s. Had no clue what that meant. I had my son at the age of 35. I didn't know what those tampons pushing out meant. And then as I got into my research, I found that. And I'm like, ding, ding, ding. There it is. I, so I actually had prolapse in my late 30s. Wasn't diagnosed till my mid 50s. And that's common. That is common. Is it more or less common in women who have given birth? Or is this in general? Childbirth is the leading cause of pelvic organ prolapse because of the tissue damage that it can occur. When that baby's head comes down that vaginal canal, you know, it's not like a little nothing. It's a significant something. And then the shoulders are right behind it. So childbirth is the leading cause. Menopause is cause number two. And these are two of the most significant life events that women experience. With menopause, what happens is as your estrogen levels drop, your tissue strength and integrity drop. And women don't equate estrogen with muscle strength. They equate it with hot flashes and night sweats and the spacey brain, that kind of stuff. And the reality is the impact to muscle integrity is massive with estrogen loss. So as those tissues get weaker, they can no longer, that muscular structure that sits below the pelvic organs, those levator muscles, 
they get weaker and they can no longer hold those organs up in position where they're supposed to be. And then they start to drop down. I've heard a lot of my friends who have had children. I have not. I've heard them talk about the pelvic floor related. Yes. 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 I'm hearing you talk so expertly on this topic. I'm like, we, I've got to find, there has to be some sort of common thread that I've heard and pelvic floor is consistent. I hear my friends talking about making sure you're taking care of your pelvic floor or going yes. to yoga for your pelvic floor, but how does that come in to POP? And So the pelvic floor itself is that base of the pelvic cavity, though. That muscular structure is a levator ante, uh, is a muscle structure, and there's, there's multiple segments to that muscle structure. And it's not just prolapse that can occur if you have a weak pelvic floor muscle structure. When you hear the word, do you know what Kegels are, Kegel exercises? Yes, and quick insert if someone doesn't know what a Kegel is. Go ahead if you want to share. Okay. So Kegel exercises, um, and this is something that uh, Dr. Kegel introduced in the fifties and then it fell by the wayside. All women should be informed of this when they're going through pelvic examinations, contracting your pelvic floor muscles to keep them strong throughout women's life cycle is a very critical base for maintaining pelvic floor strength. So basically what you're doing is you're, you're think of it, how you stop the flow of pee when you're urinating. Okay, that contraction, I'm not saying to do that, but that contraction is a Kegel contraction. You're tightening up that pelvic floor. It stops the flow of pee from coming out. Ideally, you're doing that after you're through the pee coming out. <laughs> and so, but what happens is women aren't informed typically, uh, and they may hear about this in childbirthing classes, but in general with pelvic exams, they don't very often hear about are asked, are you doing your Kegel exercises? And they should be. This is something that's critical, maintaining that that core and floor strength and integrity. And by core, I mean the, the middle of the abdominal muscles in, in the middle, as well as that pelvic floor at the bottom at the base there. So having a, a strong pelvic floor reduces the likelihood of incontinence and it will make sexual sensation more intense. Uh, and it also helps to, I don't want to use the word prevent pelvic organ prolapse from occurring because there are so many causes for pelvic organ prolapse but it may reduce how quickly you have pelvic floor issues or the intensity that you have pelvic floor issues. It may have some impact on that by doing your Kegel exercise routinely, maintaining that pelvic floor health throughout your life cycle instead of just doing it after the fact and you've been diagnosed with something. There are other conditions that are related to the pelvic floor muscle structure as well. I feel like in my 20s, we were in society, we would joke about giggles only being useful for if we wanted to stay tight for sex. We're debunking that in the moment. Yes, right yes, that, that is not. Yeah. And, and realistically, you cannot, it's kind of a misconception there because doing the giggles do not shrink the size of that vaginal canal. Based on what you're saying, it has more to do with like peeing. Right, right. And and that's not to say it doesn't impact sexuality, right. because obviously, if, if you can contract your PC muscle, and your your partner who's inserted inside of you can feel that contraction, it enhances sex for him and enhances sex for you. But I don't want to give the impression that the kegels themselves will make the vaginal canal tighter, because that is not what happens. Right. That's not how that works. Got it. It will not. So all of us that heard that, it's not for making sex better from a tightness perspective. That was a little bit misleading for when, when we grew up. That's kind of what we had heard. It's more mm-hmm. about impression. Like you can feel it, but it's not going to make you tighter. Right. Exactly. All right. I want to reiterate something you said a minute ago, which is 
pelvic floor and Kegel exercises, not only specific to pelvic organ prolapse, it's, it's pelvic floor health. Is that fair right. to say? Pelvic floor health, okay. exactly. And there's other conditions that women may have that um, are impacted by pelvic floor weakness or yeah. aggravated by over tight pelvic floor muscles. That's a whole flip side of the coin there. So, okay. When we're talking to women right now about pelvic floor, it's primarily to those women who have either birth children or that are in the perimenopause and menopause age ranges. Is that fair to say? That's kind of generalizing. Uh, There's a lot of different causes for POP. So I'm going to run through those very quickly here. Women from teens through end of life can experience pelvic organ prolapse. Usually women in their teens, it's a coexisting medical condition called Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, which is women that have got really stretchy skin or are, put air quotes around here, double jointed because they're not really two joints up there in those joints, but uh, that have got that that flexibility. They're really flexible. And so think about women that are like gymnasts, for example, that can do all the, the contortions and so on. On the causal side, so vaginal childbirth is number one, menopause is number two, heavy lifting is also a causal factor. So women that may have had more damage than average with their childbirth. They may say one child, one childbirth, but a bit more damage was done than usual. And then what are they doing after that baby becomes a toddler? They're picking up that toddler all the time. That's heavy lifting. And that doesn't even take into consideration employment. You work in a factory, you're a farm worker, you're lifting 50-pound bags of seed. Heavy lifting is a causal factor. People in general are really into fitness now, and that's a good thing. I'm a fitness junkie myself. But running and jogging and hard foot strike fitness activities jerk all of your organs down. And so that's a concern. We don't poo-poo fitness. We love fitness. Speed walk. Don't jog or run. Speed walk because that's a gliding motion. There's no hard jerking with that. And swimming is a great exercise as well. Switching sections. Chronic constipation is both a cause and a symptom of pelvic organ prolapse. So you can have chronic constipation after you have POP, but what often happens with women that rectocele is very, very common. Now that's the back end that causes the chronic constipation. A hernia forms in the rectum and the poop gets stuck in that hernia. And so what happens? You have to poop. You have the urge. It's still there. You want to poop. Go into the bathroom. You shut the door and you sit down to do your duty. Nothing comes out. And I'm talking long-term chronic constipation here. I'm not talking once in a blue moon. I'm talking like all day, every day. And if you're lucky enough to get a few rabbit-sized turds out, you count your blessings. So those women suffer horribly. Chronic coughing is also a causal factor. If you've got emphysema, if you have got allergies, if you've got the flu and you're coughing, 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 that jerks everything down as well. Diastasis rectus abdominis is when you have you get pregnant and that the long abdominal muscles stretch apart in the center of your abdominal area. And you've probably seen stretch marks on women in that area in some pictures. And what that does is it creates, I mean, they come back together usually to some degree after you have the baby, but that does create some structural weakness in your core of your body. Uh, that abdominal core there. We talk about core and floor strength, and that's your core area. If you have a genetic predisposition, if your mother's had prolapse and your aunt's had prolapse and your sister's had prolapse, well, guess what? Come on down. That's probably going to be you too. Hysterectomies can be a causal factor for prolapse. And this is a very unsettling one for women. And there's a lot of, it's a pretty divided space in whether 
it's okay to have a hysterectomy or not. Women are very passionate about that, how they feel about that. And I, I feel it's up to everyone to decide for herself. I had a hysterectomy at 40 and I had four medical problems that were being addressed. So I was thrilled to have my uterus taken out. I uh, lost an ovary in the process, but I kept one. So I counted my blessings. But what happens with that is your uterus is the hub of the wagon wheel of organs. And so you remove that hub of that wagon wheel and those other organs shift which predisposes you to other types of pelvic organ prolapse. And for an example, uh, enteroceal is your intestines, which sit in that sac above your pelvic cavity, and they can move down through the membrane that contains them and shift down into your abdominal cavity and move any place where there's an empty space there. And also neuromuscular diseases are causal factors too. So for me, being diagnosed with MS at 30 was predisposing me to other health issues that I had no awareness of. So, so it's very diverse and every woman's got different mixtures of, of causal factors. For me, I had seven. So no shock, I got prolapse. I mean, I was destined. This was where I was supposed to be. So uh, it's a matter of each woman is somewhat unique and educating yourself about prolapse and figuring out the puzzle pieces along the way. Wow. Wow. So, so many things. And it's interesting how you brought up at the very beginning, Ehlers-Danlos, because I'm going to now point to uh, the second question of the show, which is talking about a recent post that you've made, and I'm just going to read it, and then we'll Mm -hmm. talk a bit more about it. Amazing, because you didn't even know this, so it was was an awesome segue. Coexisting conditions are common with pelvic organ prolapse, muddying the treatment waters. The comorbid that sits at the top of the list of invasive intersects is Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. Non-surgical treatments are often unsuccessful, and surgery comes with a higher risk of failure or complications, so extra care must be taken. APOPS, which is Sherry's organization, proudly announces our status as a member of the Eilers-Danlos Society Global Affiliation Program in an effort to increase awareness, improve care, and expand support for women experiencing the pelvic organ prolapse slash Eilers-Danlos syndrome comorbidity. Tell me a little bit more about this. And based on what we just talked about, again, a gorgeous segue, you've told me why it matters to understand the coexisting conditions, but what will this affiliation be able to help you do? And, uh, are you looking to be more involved with all of the plethora of other coexisting conditions that you just read? The EDS uh, intersect for us is, is a significant one that I am very passionate about. These women, of all of the women in our following, these women suffer the most because of the lack of success with uh, treatments. And there is so little research going on in the EDS sector. And this is a pretty common comorbidity to occur within the EDS populace. So I happened onto this in my early years, just, it just kind of fell into place in the first, it probably was in the first three years I was doing this. Uh, A mother, not a woman that had prolapse, but her mother, she was a college student, a sophomore in college. Her mother contacted me for three months. We went back and forth in phone and email conversations, trying to figure out why her daughter had grade two, there's four grades of severity, grade two uterine prolapse and had never been pregnant, much less had a baby. So it was Q&A between the two of us all the time, all the time, trying to figure this out. Why is this happening to her? And then one day the light bulb came out for me and I I asked her mother, I said, so what does your daughter do for like fitness activities? The mom was so proud. Oh, she's been a gymnast since she was a toddler. She's very flexible. She can move her, her joints all around. And I got her in tumbling right away when she was very, very young. And she's done her whole life. And she got a scholarship to college for tumbling. And I was like, there it is right there. So I went down that rabbit hole and started digging into these issues and discovered Ehlers-Danlos condition and, and which the mother didn't even know existed. And that's very common with EDS patients. They don't even know they have these 
health issues their whole lives. There's 13 types of EDS. It's a very, very muddy condition. And they have these symptoms, these radical symptoms their whole lives. And doctors poo-poo them and they think it's all in their head and they're imagining it and they're, they're just uh, hysterical people. And they're not. They have horrible, horrible symptoms. And so by the time that they're finally diagnosed, if they're lucky enough to get diagnosed, because until you get to the, the subspecialists that are just specific to this condition, the general practices aren't educated about EDS. And so people suffer for a long time. By the time I got APOPs up and rolling well, I was familiar with EDS and women. I mean, I wasn't chasing them down or anything, but a woman came into our space that had EDS and she went back to her EDS support forum and told them, you need to check out this POP space over here, because if you're a woman, this could be you. And so they started coming in that way. And so we started seeing more and more women with EDS coming into our space. I truly believe that the prevalence is underestimated. The intersect is so significant. And there are so many aspects of POP that we need to do deeper research into to understand the condition more effectively to find better treatments for it. But the EDS POP intersect is very difficult space to figure out because it's so diverse. And so finding the right people to dig into the research at a cellular level, a genetic level, it takes brains way, way, way beyond. So when you're talking genetics and you're talking cellular level, it's much more advanced space to get into, which makes it harder to get the puzzle pieces and answers figured out. I'll be intersecting with, with the EDS people for the rest of my life. No doubt about it. APOPs will be intersecting with them for the rest of our engagement. This is an area that these women have my heart. They have my heart. All of our ladies have my heart, but the EDS sector, huge, huge, huge because of all that they have to go through to find simple answers to help themselves. This conversation, we're going to be able to educate countless more women. And the more that we do that, that's what we're, we're trying to do on a, on such a global level about just every kind of condition that a woman might have knowing that until the nineties, Western medicine was all taught on a male physiology and Mm -hmm. a, a man's. When we talk about a lot of the things that we're starting, that we've all encountered our entire lives, fibroids, endometriosis, perimenopause, menopause, like those are the big hits, but we're on the tip of the iceberg. So this is what women making moves we're embarking on is the conversation to open up the floodgates of what we don't know. The so, rest of the picture, right? Yeah, right. it's amazing. So uh, winding down here, what would you share with both those who support your work and maybe don't support your work? And what would you say to both or either? Well, I don't waste any energy worrying about the people that, that dismiss me or criticize what I'm doing or laugh at what I do, whether it's any of those or are following, I I view them all through the same lens. The bottom line here is I will not quit. I'm in this for the long haul. I'll be in my coffin still blapping away about prolapse, talking about this long after I'm dead and gone. This is too significant. This is women's health. This is a a very long-term hidden aspect of women's health. And because it is pandemic level, Prevalence-wise, it's critical that we continue to push the envelope forward. So we're looking at shifts in awareness, screening, practice, policy. And step one for all of this is getting women comfortable saying the word vagina, Vagina. acknowledging their vagina, Vagina. getting completely at ease with discussions about vaginal health. This is the vessel of life and love. We wouldn't mm-hmm. be here if there weren't vaginas out there. <laughs> so this is this is no 
to me, no bigger stigma than any other part of my body. And certainly my family was like, oh, geez, there she goes again talking about vaginas. <laughs> you know, it took them a while to get used to it. But the bottom line is, is I have been so blessed to watch women in our space come in highly stigmatized, embarrassed, awkward, upset, anxious about their vaginal health that were very uncomfortable talking about their vaginas to anyone, even their intimate partners, even their doctors. And I'm so lucky to get to watch them morph Mm -hmm. every day into strong, empowered women. And every time one does, I'm like, yay, you go girl. (laughs) By even one degree. It's awesome. I'm very lucky. It's awesome. Yeah. It's it's all good stuff. It's a word. It's a, it's a, um, a vital part of our bodies. You said that earlier and the good news I hope is that we're getting more open as the generations come up, meaning me as a millennial, an old millennial, but a millennial nonetheless, (laughs) I am so proud of my vagina, my Yoni. She's gorgeous. And to be able to speak that truth. Cool. So Sherry Palm, where do we find you? The easiest way to find me is to Google APOPS, A-P-O-P-S. Or Google my name, Sherry Palm, and you'll find me in all different kinds of ways and directions. I actually post on between nine and 12 social media pages, Monday through Friday. And these are whispers of uh, research, articles, personal experiences, etc. Information about my book. I'm getting close to blasting that out there now. So I'll be talking more about that over the next couple of months. And that will lead you down the path to where, you know, you can, based on what your interests are, whether it's, it's, it's a Facebook, we have an open and a closed Facebook page, APOPS does. So if you're not comfortable yet talking about your vagina out loud, come into our closed space, request entry. We screen aggressively to maintain a secure environment. So our women can talk about whatever they want to talk about. The only men that are allowed in there are doctors. That's it. Otherwise it, it's strictly women that are in there. Um, hardcore and Facebook, I, I post in several Facebook pages. We've got tons of information on APOPS website. So for those that have questions about POP, if I mention a symptom that is a flag for you, I highly encourage you to Google APOPS and you'll see I've got over 100 videos on YouTube. I've written uh, close to 100 articles uh, and that's on the website, APOPS website. Podcasts are on there. So there's tons of information that you can access readily about POP. So dig in, find the answers that you need and help yourself. Any closing remarks? Thank you so much for offering this opportunity, Amy, because it is people that have got podcasts like yours that are lifting the veil, that are are sharing women's empowerment messages. It's so critical to what all of us do, and and it unites all of us in our efforts, which builds the energy even stronger. So A+, thank you so much for your time. It's hugely appreciated. Thanks, Sherry. You're so welcome.